an opera singer and a comedian walk into an opera house. All right, so we are here at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Seeing uh, La we, This is Nick's very first time at the actual opera. Mm. Welcome to another conversation from the high-low art divide between opera singer turned experimental performer Emma Katrovis and comedian and TV writer turned novelist Nicholas Anthony. This episode is the first half of a two-part series recorded in New York City, which we visited for a week early this January and which Nick fittingly calls Disneyland for intellectuals. One of the things Nick and I realized was important to us in making an opera singer and a comedian walk into a bar was celebrating live events. But how do you do that on a podcast? Well, the nice thing about recording devices is that they're pretty stealthy. So it's fairly easy to unobtrusively record on the ground at live events, capturing the immediate visceral experience. As you can hear, I'm still learning how to do field recordings, so there are some audio pops, but bear with me. We recorded this episode sitting in our seats during both intermissions and right after the end of a performance of Zeffirelli's classic production of Puccini's La Boheme, one of the most popular, if not the most popular, operas of the last century, and even better, one that tells the story of aspiring artists, a fitting theme for this podcast. We tried to make this episode friendly to anyone from the opera aficionados to those who have never attended an opera before. So we don't spend too much time describing the story and the music of the opera during our conversation because that would be boring to someone who knows anything about opera. But you also shouldn't need to know much about the story and the music in order to follow what we're saying. And hey, if this conversation inspires you to try something new and attend an opera, cool. you're going to hear a few excerpts of La Boheme throughout the conversation, namely the endings of the second, third, and fourth scenes. So you can hear roughly what we heard shortly before each time I pressed record. Since it's illegal to record a performance in a theater without permission, I'm going to use a recording of a 1995 centennial performance of La Boheme at the Teatro Reggio in Torino, conducted by Daniel Oren, with icons like Mira Lafreni as Mimi and Luciano Pavarotti as Rodolfo in the cast. We do not discuss the specific singers and conductor we happened to hear that night. This may have something to do with my reticence about critiquing performers publicly, but I did put that night's conductors and cast in the description. Alright, the second scene is ending and the first intermission is starting. And I'm curious to know how Nick is enjoying the opera so far. How do you feel about this um, uh, decadent, yes, the decadent. No, not regal. It's regal? It's a regal. This decadent place. art form. Why no, not I was... regal? I can say regal. It's my word, regal. Okay. Garish. Pomp. Pomp. Camp. Yeah. Elegant. Um. Well, what's really interesting is they have the little readout right in front of you that's really discreet that you can't even see if you're one seat over. And it's like, it's not like too bright like a cell phone. It's just like a really subtle way to actually understand the English translation of the Italian word. So that helps a tremendous amount to actually like understand the jokes and 
it used to be they had it above the stage. This this is kind of a more modern thing yeah. that they're doing now in a lot of opera houses. This is a, a really nice way to kind of have my own experience with it. Um, is it pretty much for you like watching a foreign film with subtitles? Um, I guess, but it's also I guess what's fun for me is you know it being a, essentially a, on a proscenium. You know, there's the way they're staging it is quite interesting and. You know, I have to imagine it's interesting for the time that they started with just like a really like kind of quaint set of just like somebody's apartment, right? It was very modern for that yeah. time, I would say, the and the fact that there's no um, overture. You yeah. just go right into the action. Yeah, it's, it it was very cinematic for that time. It's like a version of like what I can assume is that era's like Seinfeld. That's interesting, yeah. I mean, there is a comedic element to it. Yeah. I would say it's just like a, a romantic movie, like a grand movie yeah. for that. But then they cut to this tremendously dynamic scene with literally horses and children and an entire bazaar. And, um, you know, then at one point when they they remove some of the um, the, the sellers, the, the people selling their goods and then they have like a cafe scene and all of the background there's probably literally what 75 background I mean 40 well if you add that, that the parade mm -hmm. it's probably like close to 50 people 50 yeah, plus people overall the and, that, and that they were all paused they were frozen for while, about 15 20 minutes yeah while the Marcelo's ex-girlfriend Marcello Marcello ex-girlfriend Musetta put on her her little thing her aria mm -hmm. it's called an aria M. yeah <laughs> step it up <laughs> here at the Met you know we use uh, we use good language yeah. we talk good <laughs> do, do you like what? how does the music to you as, I mean you're a cinephile so you're used to music undercutting uh, or not undercutting but underscoring or, or underpinning drama what what how does that feel like to you that they're singing the whole time and that the music is going the whole time because to me a lot of this music is very cinematic you'll hear echoes of absolutely. Puccini and cinematic and cinema yeah no absolutely I think um, I mean it's interesting that they have these like set pieces that these are considered like all right this is we're kind of building up this is maybe more like quote unquote the dialogue part of it even though they're singing it and then they have the parts where it's actually like all right this is the specific moment where he gets his take and then she gets her take and it's almost like a, a two-hander that one washes the other and um, I think it's the type of thing, you know it's like if I for instance you reference something cinematic like the Godfather theme music which is so emblematic of I don't even know just cinema at this point and I remember when we were in um, Switzerland and we heard that guy we were just at the at the train station and he was playing like a i don't even know what style of guitar that was yeah, it was just a dingy guitar yeah but it was beautiful like just the faint hint of that mm -hmm. sound because it's so i know it so well i have to imagine if once i heard this music more that seeing it live would potentially resonate a little deeper i mean for me like i'm not sentimental about opera. I don't even consider myself at this point an opera aficionado anymore, but um, I, I got teared up several times. Watching this? What, uh, listening, yeah. Oh, it could be, so now that's my because question. Because of the music. Yeah, is so is this as good as it gets? Like, are they... Are oh, they, this is good. This is good. 
good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's good professional yeah. work. <laughs> Better than good? I don't... It, like, for me, it's like you, you either fulfill yeah. the, the, the technical the requirement yeah. or you or then you don't. And to me, this fulfills, obviously, the technical requirement. Now, somebody like, again, I'm a complete noob, and I apologize if I sound noobish, but like Pavarotti, is he taking it to an, another level? or? I've never heard Pavarotti live. That's the thing. is yeah. like all these big voices. I've never heard them well, live. The I thing. would have never heard them. I think what's fascinating, and... I think, well, the people listening to this, maybe they are somebody who would actually go to the opera, but the people in my world, I don't know anyone who's been to the opera. And the idea that they are un-microphoned and un-amplification is, I mean, we're, I don't know, a good, what, 200 feet from uh, three? We're in the, the, what's called the family circle, the second family circle, first row of the very top tier yeah but i mean you can like it's a great because we're sitting in the first row of our section there's nobody in front of us it's a really nice vantage point because you can see uh on the ceiling they have these incredibly uh, ornate almost what look like uh, a combination of of explosions and toffee like chandeliers um and then the backdrop is this uh golden uh, caramel uh, with a mid-century kind of wood and there's like a on the top there like a, a brooch of cityscape <laughs> and description. <laughs> yeah and then there's a, Anthony describer a, of interiors a dollop of uh, gold <laughs> on the ceiling that um, so you're has, impressed huh has seen some uh, wear and tear and it looks like it could use actually a, a paint job uh, which is a fascinating little detail um, but what also impresses me is, look, there's probably 75 people in the cast, plus another how many in the orchestra, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and it's Monday night and it's packed. Yeah, it's pretty full. Yeah. Like, it's nice to see, I don't know, it's just we're a part of something here and we've heard, you know, you heard Slovak, we've heard French, there's like all different yeah. nationalities yeah. running around here and um, I don't know, it's, I'm pretty captivated by it all. That's great. Better I mean, it's interesting that, <laughs> yeah, that everyone in the opera world is talking about the death of opera and how the audiences are dwindling and Honestly, things aren't what they were used to be. I, I, I feel that way. I think everything feels that way until you get a Tiger Woods. You know, like golf was that way until Tiger Woods comes around and then all of a sudden it gets these eyes. And you could say the same thing, like Michael Jordan pre-LeBron James it was the megastars that bring and it's like can you know i'm assuming the Pavarotti's of the world like who's that next you know fortunately or unfortunately it's like what just transcends the genre and attracts kind of more of the average interesting because unfortunately or again or like i think the same is true with comedy like it's the megastars that you know get most people pulled into it and then there's like you said the aficionados who you know, like a sommelier who can describe wine understands it a little bit better. But the reality is, is I think you need those tall poppies to kind of. What do you think it is about those sorts of people? I mean, what's different about? I think it's a common. I mean, uh, Andre 3000, 
who recently put out his flute album, which is hilarious to me. And he has this great interview of him in a washing or a, a, laundromat, a laundromat. Yeah. About, but like one of the things he said I, that I really liked was it's less about talent and it's more about momentum and timing. And so I think, again, it's not about, you know, it's a lot of this stuff is very secular. It's not about being new. It's about being next. So who would potentially, you know, I mean, and, and that naturally kind of that those people reveal themselves at, at the time that they need to be revealed. And I think as performers, we, I mean, this is a story about young people who don't feel like they're getting the, that's okay. Uh, it's a story of young artists who feel like they're geniuses and they're not finding, you know, the, 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 the play or the opera starts with uh, the writer burning his play for warmth. And um, there's the painter painting the painting and the musician comes home. And so it's, there's something very romantic about now. Are they objectively? I don't know if even within the play, are they actual geniuses or are they lying to themselves? Like, do we find that out? I think out? it's supposed to be kind of cute. I, I mean, yeah. none of them make a, have a big career. Gotcha. The, point is that, the point is that they are probably like middle class children, like, yeah. like kind of middle class people who are able to have those dreams, just yeah. like in, just like today. Well, I think what happened, though, too, is like the proliferate the proliferation of reading and education and writing, I think that potentially spawns, you know, people being able to be artists that weren't in the upper class. And so there is this, it feels like in like the 1800s, 1700s, I don't know when the printing press comes out, but. Well, that's more like the 1700s. Yeah. So post that it's like there's this obsession with like broke artists like in a lot of different yeah that's a fascinating I mean, yeah. there's been really interesting stuff written about that um also david graper talks about like studies of of how the this idea that the revolutionaries were actually um just rich people who were who were disenfranchised is not well, true and that there was always a certain percentage of like the children of the rich who I think felt that, like yeah. they had gotten deserved better, but that actually, I think um, it's I think it's still a tremendous luxury to be an artist. Yeah, and I think the reality of things even today is that there are sneakily or not, regardless of whatever somebody's story is, that there are oftentimes somebody's helping somebody. You know, they're funding at least part of their. Yeah, I mean, they, well, for one thing, their education at the very least. Correct. <laughs> Just the fact that you can, you know, as David Foster Wallace says, we're obscenely uh, overeducated. Overeducated. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what makes this so kind of deliciously current, even though it comes the story. I mean, this the, story the novel, yeah, yeah, La Boheme, the novel, I think, that that was written in French um, was some sometime from the mid 1800s. Oh, yeah. But it's it feels very current doesn't it this oh, idea the evergreen of, themes yeah yeah no we're talking about yeah i mean these are the actors are I'm, this is just a trend within opera i'm assuming the actors are actually older but they're playing like, they have to be older yeah. you can't be yeah, yeah there's no 19 year old like opera prodigies no and that, that's just right now it yeah. used to be I, I i mean when i read like historical treaties there was a time when it was pretty normal to be a 19 year old you yeah. know soprano who was singing main roles but it's just not the case today people don't get to that point yeah. technically until later interesting 
Yeah, evergreen themes, man. I mean, the 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 painter who loses his his girl to the rich guy, and then he tries to woo her back with the. Well, she tries to woo him. Well, and both vice versa. Yeah. He is then. And well, the, you have, I mean, really, you, have, you end up with these two couples that are kind of different. They're in different phases of their relationship. Mm-hmm. So you have the first couple, Rodolfo and Mimi, in the very romantic phase. And then you have the second couple, uh, Marcello and Musetta, in, in a less romantic phase because they had already broken up and gotten yeah. back together and this kind of thing. And I, I and they also are two very different um, just I don't ways of communicating. I don't see the like I don't see the promise of the premise really developed yet in terms of it will. Yeah, uh, right now it still feels like setup. Yeah, it is. Well, you have but, two more. Hours. You know, if you, uh, you know, I mean, what year did this come out? What Puccini was eighteen ninety six. Okay, so right, late. So that's around the time of Oscar Wilde, right? Yeah, turn yeah. of the century kind of. And Oscar Wilde feels like to me it feels like Seinfeld where there's so much set up and you and every little small thing pays off I don't feel like right now it's like there's interesting we're setting up characters everything has been but set I up I, I don't tell. see like because they didn't pay the landlord that ends up you know or because they you know wooed the woman back from the wealthy well it happens slower in this genre yeah. so it might feel weird that you have the, like what we've been here an hour or something and it's been I an hour long yeah, performance I mean, and it's been the, all set up the music itself is incredible and the performance and the, the sets and everything is incredible but from a pure as a storyteller myself i i guess i don't have necessarily a story hook yet right well it's the you have to think of it as the same thing but over a much longer period of time yeah so this, I think that this would this would have been maybe the first fifteen minutes of a of a movie. Yeah. I think. And but then what is the because the, in to put it in like, you know, yeah, well, modern cinematic I'm, terms, I'll, I'm what is the premise of the premise? Like, what is the complication? Who wants something? Oh. What is in their way? Oh well, I'm not sure if you noticed that Mimi is mortally ill. I did, I did not notice. Yeah. So that's the problem is that you didn't notice it. She does have tuberculosis. Oh, the old TB. Mm-hmm. All right. And how do they express this? What do they? Well, oh, if you notice when she comes in, she gets very sick. Yes. I don't know if you thought that was maybe just well, an but, affectation. <laughs> well, but he like lights a candle and says, and then she's very. And she's, she's yeah, she's because she's not that sick, but yeah. she's already a bit sick. Yeah, and so I thought potentially she was—it was a put-on just to kind of get his attention. Uh, it could have been. Yeah. I, mean, I think that at that time I mean, it was just so current. At that time, I don't—I I fake tuberculosis all the time, so <laughs> it's part of my go-to to get out of this. But yeah, I, I do think that at that time it would have been more clear that she was sick because it was such a, a menace at that time. They didn't have any vaccines or anything, so. Well, they also but, didn't have any misinformation about vaccines, so. <laughs> of La Boheme has ended and the second intermission has started. Your impressions? Well, it feels like we've they've been doing this for 
at least 1,389 times. So. Remember that number? They've we, got it down. We read, yeah, it's the 1,390th performance of La Bohème yeah. at the Met. And I guess another thing that's unique, I've never, I mean, very rarely are there films that have intermissions, but we are now dealing with a second intermission. They're really trying to sell the, the coffee cake. It's good for the, the, the spectator because your ability to concentrate is the highest in the beginning. Well, it, it actually introducing all the conflict now, too. The idea that uh, the one couple who were fighting decided to stay together, and then the couple that they thought they were going to stay together broke apart. Well, they broke apart, but then they decided not to, to no, stay together until slipped. spring. Yeah, because at the beginning, Marcello was with his girl. Was it? Yeah, and kind of off camera or off scene, if you will, uh, Mimi shows up and informs Marcello that, hey, Rodolfo has flown the coop, which, you know, happens off screen or off, off scene, if you will, which is a little unsatisfying. But then... Well, that's where, that's where there really is a limitation to this, uh, to, to how much you can show in, on, on the stage. But it's a choice to show it because they could show the scene of them breaking up, but instead they show the scene of them getting back together. So at the end, they, they agree to stay together, even though she has tuberculosis. They, they agree, which they don't outrightly say, but she's just sick. Uh, they agree that... Yeah, I've always known it was tuberculosis, but it's true that I'm not sure that they ever say the word tuberculosis. She just has an intense cough, that, and she's very sick, is what he's alluding to. At, at least from what I've gathered. I think they called it consumption back then. Yeah. I always thought consumption was somebody who just ate and drank too much <laughs> which it seems nope. consumption was just when they got very sick and just died of coughing and stuff i think basically consumption was lots of different diseases that they didn't know how to name yeah but and at the end the i guess kind of like on the nose uh, just to kind of mirror the jealousy that uh, rodolfo was exhibiting Marcello becomes incredibly jealous of what's her name? Musetta. Yeah, Musetta. And pushes her away, and she ends up, he refers to him as a. A, a painter of buildings. Like yeah, she, he paints walls, a house painter. Yeah. And, stuff. and she re he refers to her as a witch. And so she runs off, and then the way the production has it, she's in the background, and she already finds like another suit very quickly. And well, I like when she says. I don't like lovers who pretend to be, and then you always have to laugh when you play the role. Yeah. You pretend to be ha, 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 husbands. <laughs> yeah, I don't like lovers who pretend to be husbands. Yeah, yes, yes. So it's weird because like they keep talking about the sexual revolution happening in the '60s, but these people were pretty free. You know how we got here, right? <laughs> we got here because people, you know, they found out about each other and things happened. <laughs> um, I am curious so the performance that you did in St. Paul, Minnesota at the Summer Brewery you sang a piece from this yes what was it about What? why that piece for you know what? I mean that it was just such a hodgepodge um, we just I mean this was a performance uh, that had lots of different Czech music but it was um, you know it was a mod so the writer Patricia Hample wrote yeah. this text and I think it was just that the text talked about opera Italian opera and this was like 
we just kind of going through my repertoire. So it was and, a part of your repertoire. Yeah, I already yeah. had. I actually had studied this entire role in Italy of Musetta because I don't do classical opera anymore. It, this is just one of the few arias I can just kind of co come out yeah. with to kind of demonstrate classical opera, and we needed that for the text. I don't really even have it in my repertoire anymore, but I can kind of brush it off when I need to, and it represents classical repertoire. Interesting, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 uh, building to be a bunch of tragic love stories here. Oh, where, yeah. You know, in a... Shakespearean Romeo and Juliet sort of way. I, I can't imagine this ending well. You, I mean, you have a good sense of story. <laughs> it's really interesting because, like, so many you know opera aficionados, they generally prepare to go to the opera and they read detailed description. You know, sometimes they read the libretto before they even go. And I love that you're experiencing this like really like a story. And I'm also just realizing like how modern this must have been at that time. Even the way that he begins and ends the second act, where he just the you just have the sodo kind of thing, and um, it's so like it, it really, it's almost uh, practical. Like it, mm -hmm. it shuts the audience up, and then it says, "Okay, that's the end of the <laughs> that's the end of the act." Um, I mean, how long was this second? Act? I think it must have been like forty minutes at the most. Forty. Forty minutes yeah. or thirty minutes at the most. It's interesting. Um, I don't hate it. I, I, yeah. I, I would rather have these breaks than feeling like I'm like, you know, oh, God, it's two and a half hours of pure just. It's going by really fast for me. And I'm. it's funny, like, having drifted away from this and then come back to it. And I, I'm seeing it in a, in a way where I think I'm seeing the bigger picture now than nice. I did when yeah. I was, like, a singer. I was really enmeshed in it. Well, because I had asked you that. I was asked, you know, is it interesting to come and see La Boheme and you said well if I was to come you know part of it was that you were introducing me to it but now that you are sitting here you're finding some more value than maybe you would have anticipated yeah I mean I'm just it, I guess I get a sense of what the art form has to offer as a whole yeah. more um, yeah I mean I'm seeing what it has to offer I, I, I still think that it's because the technology of opera is the technology of yeah. like pro projecting the voice without microphones. To me, that's just problematic from like a technological evolution point of view and the way that technology affects society, you know, culture and society. In that sense, it is a relic as opposed to a living art form. But I also see how this is absolutely like La Boheme is the roots of the film aesthetic Oh, it's and, absolutely cinematic. Yeah, yeah and... And, and I, when I say cinematic, I just mean, obviously, it's not as... I mean, uh, there's beautiful set design. And, that's Zeffirelli, and it's true that, yeah, yeah. Zeffirelli was trying to... He was already part of that, like, that revival mentality where he was trying to bring opera back from the grave, kind yeah. of, and trying to... And he was reacting also to cinema. Yeah. So I think that might be also what we're reacting to. But in, well, even know. if you just look at the libretto, the structure... I mean, look, it comes down to competition. If all of a sudden you have something that's doing things with a moving camera and, uh, well, then, you know, how are you going to get people to come back to the to the opera? It's like, well, then you have to start thinking about things like depth of field and, like, layering the, and, you know, even with the smoke and the, the snow and, like, I thought the one cinematic image of the initial where there's the layering of, so there's like the foreground and there's middle ground and background. And in the background, there were these silhouettes through the gates 
and it's like that's very cinematic you know and and um and you said this is um uh Zeffa, Zeffa, Zeffirelli. Zeffirelli's, it's based on his production well it is his production it's, it's basically his, set, his set design yeah. he was he always yeah he did the set designs and the the directing obviously they have to study it and revive it with a new director who yeah. maybe study and they obviously they've changed stuff you know yeah. like it's um but the thing is it's very simple direction like it's not doing anything complicated like what you're seeing is is like an actually really like conservative standard way of, of making producing an opera and a lot of the discussions that are being had in opera today is like about these modern productions that would take la bohème and set it for example in contemporary new york yeah and have the people who are you know dying of consumption actually be dying of drugs you know or being oh, oh, you know uh, being yeah. addicted or aids or something modern um and, you, and you or were, they would do something very abstract where you don't even know where you are and it's but you very were saying abstract. that rent is a straight up rent i would say is yeah definitely it's is, a i guess when i because i remember seeing the documentary about the guy who wrote rent it's a super sad story um I guess I don't remember his story. The the story of the guy who wrote Rent is yeah. that he, he it's like a tragic thing. He died. It like the, the, he took him took him like ten years to make it. I mean, they made a movie about it with Andrew Garfield and stuff. So it's but I remember seeing the documentary years ago and not knowing anything about it and watching it and just like it, he you know it took him forever to get the thing going, and then he finally had success off Broadway and he died before it went to like he died right as they found out it was going to Broadway. So he never actually, I think, saw it on Broadway, which is, you know, like, I mean, weirdly, poetically tragic about this artist who's, if he's influenced by La Pem, which is the I would say definitely. tragic artist. I just, and again, I, I didn't have this as a reference, so I'm sure if there is, you know, direct influence that they probably talked about it in that documentary. Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I, the thing is, like, even this La Boheme, Puccini's La Boheme, which is the most, let's say, the most culturally significant version of La Boheme is already an adaptation. Gotcha. Of a novel. Of, of a, yeah, and I was actually reading in the program, it was first a play and then a novel. Oh, of, so this by goes the back same... many times. This is kind of like Hamlet. Then. Yeah, I mean, it's like all those things. Yeah. Like, very few original, yeah, 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 yeah. like, stories. Um, yeah. But it was a... Yeah, Henry Murger's 1849 drama and 1851 novel. Um, oh wow, it goes all the way back to the middle 1800s. Middle 1800s, yeah. This doesn't come out until 1896. Yeah, so there's like and a the whole. And rent comes out in what, like the early 2000s? Oh really? That late? I thought it was like an 80s thing. No. Oh I think okay. It was, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe for sure not. I'm pretty sure 90s at the late 90s ish. I think. I, I mean, I, well, it, it's set in the 80s. Uh, it, isn't it set kind of during the AIDS episode? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. The well, it goes to show, like, however, like, yeah, we've already said that the themes are so evergreen. The idea of the, the, these starving artists, these people who are, like, have these these desires for something higher than themselves, and they kind of confuse art with love and love with art, and they're a little bit love addicts, all of them, and addicted to, like, the experience and the experience of life then they also don't have money but then they also have probably good educations and pretensions they're also dealing with mortality um there's this idea of of you know every few generations have their disease yeah. right yeah i mean covid was compared to aids was pretty light i think <laughs> well, I you know every you know tb was 
a kind of a death sentence for a lot of people, and it was it killed you over time. Um, yeah, and I mean, diseases have been following us. Well, it's and, just existential. We're all yeah, going to go, so what's going to get us, and how are we going to live while we're here? And um, Yeah, life. they got a real life on their hands here. <laughs> I don't know if you got this. The reason that Rodolfo keeps sending Mimi away and pushing her away is because he fears that he's too poor to be able to take care of her when she's sick. Oh yeah, that his apartment's even too cold that she's already sick and now she's going to be even, she's going to get worse. So this idea that a lot of these diseases were also diseases of poverty to some extent. We just finished the last. The last the, the Tommy gun was going to be a thing, but Rodolfo just comes out and slays everybody. <laughs> Spoiler. Sorry, guys. For those of you deep into the <laughs> opera culture. No, it's it's a sad story about uh, not having the resources to help their friend. Um, and. Yeah, Mimi dies, and it's real, real sad. <laughs> yeah. Well, they point this out in the program that Rodolfo at some point says love is not enough. Wow, that is bleak. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, it's yeah. just exploring the theme of uh, the material and the immaterial. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, there's something about the nature of, of hearing it as an opera that brings a whole level of uh, intensity mm-hmm. and uh, it just makes it that much more sad but you you know I, I wasn't sure if I was actually going to feel the feels and it's all there you feel the feels? oh the feels were all there yeah. so sad yeah. yeah like I can totally you know you'll hear people describe oh it's the moment when you know Marcello and blah 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 and they talk about the characters in the moment and you're like I was my fear was that I would just be like I don't know it's just people singing and bellowing and but no you totally understand that mm-hmm. and it's it, it totally it's a the the medium of opera brings this whole level of uh, visceralness that just can't be captured by you know I mean it can be captured in a different way through a performance or through. Because it's, it's a little bit more an- allegorical, I guess. 
Yeah, even though this is Verismo, so it was actually deeply, deeply voristic and realistic for its time. Even yeah. the way how it like begins and ends abruptly is also very voristic. Yeah, I mean, for uh, for opera, maybe it's realistic, but the reality is, is this is still like people don't sing as they talk, so it's inherently there's some artifice. Well, there has to be less story and more. Yeah, it it can become more alle- kind of feel eloquent. Yeah. But ultimately, I'm hooked, and I'd love to see more. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Well, (laughs) we'll see. Yeah. So, that was the first field recording of an opera singer and a comedian going to live events. Next time, we are jumping to the other end of the spectrum, away from the highly codified world of opera going to the edge of the theatrical medium. We attended the mysterious experience called Sleep No More at the McKittrick Hotel. Is it theater? Is it a haunted house posing as high art? Is it an overly elaborate method of selling cocktails? Let's find out in the next episode.